Psalm 141 is where we'll be this morning, Psalm 141. Made a number of trips to to India for a while there, seemed like every year. I think actually that was the, the contract we'd written with Vineet, is that one of us would go out there to encourage uh, him, and he would come here. Uh, of course, things have changed a little bit, although we're s- still keeping up on uh, the Skyping. Just Skyped with him on Thursday, and things are, are going well, and they're encouraged, hoping things will lift a little bit there. Still relying a lot on Zoom at the time. But on these trips, I would have the opportunity to take uh, another fellow pastor um, or a deacon with me. And one time I took one of our elders um, and we try to prepare the best we can. To, here's what's going to happen. Here's the mindset you need to have. Um, one of them is just getting bitten and uh, having something transmitted to you. So you go with deets. I know it's kind of, you give one, you take one, skin cancer with all this stuff on there. But, you know, it's just, you, you, you do the best you can. So one evening, we're in these in this room that Vinita put us in, one of our elders, is at the far room, and I'm at the other side, and we're in these little, it had to be smaller than twin beds. He's in his twin bed, I'm in my twin bed, at least there's, you know, this, this space, and you, it's even funny because you'd wake up and be like, why, where are we at, and why are you over there? <laughs> you know, where's my family? Because you're just so disoriented being on the other side of the planet. But uh, he made fun of me one night because I had taken the blanket and pulled it over my head. And we're just laying there, and he's laughing. He goes, you look like a mummy. And I'm like, yeah, well, considering this situation, it's probably the wisest thing. And that was just kind of where it dropped. And I thought, oh, well, it's just the, the things you do. Well, we come back, and unbeknownst to our elder, who will remain unnamed, um, this little growth started growing on his arm, and it started to get bigger and bigger. It, it, it looked to me like a fist. It probably wasn't quite that big. But then this hair thing just stood up right in the middle. We thought, this is not good. I mean, you couldn't write this kind of stuff. This is like a horror movie. Come to find out some sand fly had bit him over there and had injected parasites. And these parasites, they attack the, the vital organs of the body. So strangely enough, they prescribed leprosy um, medication to deal with it. I think he's fine. <laughs> Since then, you always kind of want to check <laughs> anything left over. It, it, it's a frightening thing, right? To, to have something that you didn't realize that's within you that could be attacking your heart and liver and kidneys, your vital organs that needs to be dealt with. Well, I, I thought that was a fitting illustration to, to set our mindset for Psalm 141. Because David, here the psalmist, um, Holy Spirit writing through him, is penning a journal that underlines suffering and persecution, intensity on the outside that's pressing in upon him. The boiling level's high. It's a pressure point in his life. But he's concerned not about praying that the Lord would remove, at least at first, that's not the priority, that the Lord would remove the suffering. Although he asked the traps to be uh, turned upon the wicked who laid traps for him and snares. But he doesn't start that way. In fact, he leaves that to the very end. He's actually more concerned about what's inside the parasite of sin in his heart. And you see that in verse 4 in Psalm 141, where he he prays, Do not let my heart incline to any evil. And then in verse 8, really refocuses the heart where it needs to be. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you 
I seek refuge, a testament of faith. So you can say the power for this text is found in verse 8. In you I take refuge. You're my Lord, my covenant Lord, my saving Lord. But he's also concerned about his heart, the parasites of his heart. And that is actually the very centerpiece of Psalm 141. You see, David, in the midst of the suffering of sin on the outside, as a result of the curse, we live in a sin-cursed world and there's persecution and there's suffering. He's actually more concerned about the condition, the spiritual condition of his heart in the midst of it. Well, just to amp up the, the suffering, just so you understand how strange this is to our ears to be focused on the internal more than the external. Just notice the statements that he uses to describe his suffering. In verse 7, he says, as when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. So you think of dry, arid land. Probably desert isn't as helpful, but it's, it's land that's parched. It's dry. It's broken. It's cracked. And the farmer's going to go out to that and try to plow that. There's no life. It's just It's like the Dust Bowl era. It just crumbles. It's a description, quite depictive, of death. If you've been in a deathbed and somewhere in that process, you'll know that the life, the life-giving juices, if you will, the vitality of life is emitted, and then the body begins to dry up and decay. Well, he uses this analogy to describe his life at the very brink of death, at the very mouth of Sheol. He's describing himself in a graveyard. He's describing himself, if you will, with his tombstone. Now he describes in verse 8, leave me not defenseless. It's the idea of being poured out, life vitality poured out. That's where I came across that description as between the dryness of the earth and the, the being poured out that's pictured in the ESV as defenseless. And then verse 9, the traps that are laid for me, the snares and the prayer that the wicked would fall into their own nets while I pass by safely, that God would turn the tables. Well, that's the description of his suffering. It's pretty intense. It's pretty graphic. And why would God allow a believer to endure such persecution and suffering? It's interesting if we had the time to look at Psalm 139 which is actually a couple of chapters previous to this. David talks about the Lord knitting him in the womb, his providence, uh, his providential hand in fashioning, forming him. And then he moves to the wicked and his enemies. And then he closes the psalm with saying, so therefore, search me and know me, try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The idea is that God searches the heart through trials. Now, he's not searching, we know, he's omniscient. He he knows our hearts. But the idea of the testing of our hearts, so we can see our hearts, is connected with the trials. So the idea is that God knows our hearts, so search me, try me, show me my heart, show me the wickedness in there, flush it out with the trial, so that, I can continue to grow in in the way of life. That's David's mindset with regard to suffering. It's an opportunity. The pressure cooker is on on the outside. It's an opportunity to see how's the heart going to respond. And so David evidently is more concerned about the condition of his heart in the midst of his suffering 
than even the battle waging on the outside. Verse 4, don't let my heart incline to any evil. That's his request. That's his concern. Now, maybe you need to step back and take some biblical theology and try to paint the contours of the heart a little bit. What is the heart? Now, I know right now this is where you're like, get the pen and paper, or maybe you're got the thumbs going on the phone. You're going to take notes. And this is where people call me the uh, fire hose. <laughs> you just get stuff. It's like, I can't keep up. I guess we need the audio for that. But I'm just warning you. <laughs> We're just going to do a little synopsis on the heart. You might not be able to keep up, but just, 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 yeah, follow along the best you can. So the human being is described in the Bible as both immaterial and material joined together. Joined together. There's a unity between the immaterial and the material. The immaterial is described, but Paul calls the outer man and the inner man being renewed day by day. So those are the terms that we're given. The immaterial is the inner person. It's often known as the heart or the mind or the spirit or the soul or the conscience. And these are not different compartments in your inner being. This is just describing your self, your inner self, with different functions, different functions. And so the heart underlines the worship center. In fact, he uses a term, don't incline, don't steer it, don't let it bend, don't let it turn. The heart is like a compass that points not to north, but to whatever the treasure is that we delight in and desire. It's a powerful mechanism. It's meant for worshiping the Lord, who is all-sufficient and is fully capable of satisfying our hearts is the eternal one. Eternal beauty, eternal glory, eternal holiness. Just add eternal and infinite to his attributes, is the, the character that he displays himself with. And you get the idea that this is an unending, that he is an unending delight for our souls. And that's what our hearts are made for. But the problem is when that heart is corrupt, that's a bad thing. Because that desire for infinite delight that God can only meet, and we're made for as image bearers, will latch itself on like a leech to the things in this world that are not infinite and eternal. And so we destroy whatever we leech from for worship, and it destroys us because it dies, and so we are attached to something dying, and so we experience this decay. We call this enslavement to sin. We call it addictions, being overcome by it. Well, it's powerful because the heart was made to worship the Lord. The mind emphasizes the same inner being, but focused on the understanding, the spiritual understanding particularly. And it can have a positive, knowing God, growing the knowledge of God, but it can have a negative too, a rebellious spiritual understanding to the Lord. And so there can be a darkened mind and a darkened heart. It's blind spiritually. It suppresses the truth of God. The soul and spirit view the inner person as a spiritual being in relation to God. It's often used holistically. It's who you really are. And then the conscience, if we add that aspect, is the law written on that inner man, the work of the law written on it that, that testifies to justice and truth. It's the foundation for us justifying, vindicating, or condemning and confronting those two mechanisms, judging, condemning, vindicating, 
they work from the principle of the law written on the heart. We call this conscience. What's the condition of the heart, this inner man? Well, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately wicked. Who can even understand it? And cursed is the one who trusts in his own flesh. It's that principle of trying to find their hope and life in the, the fleshly things, the things that are passing away. They're cursed. It's destructive. I'd say a person who's been given over to sin, to the destructiveness of that sin, they're, it's a cursed life. And you see that cursedness. You see the mind's impact, the body's impact. They're backed on relationships. That's what happens when the heart deceives we put our trust in the flesh. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, whoever trusts in his own mind or heart, it's the Hebrew word lave. It's sometimes translated mind, sometimes heart in the English translations. But the one who trusts in his own heart, he's a fool, it says. He's a fool. Ephesians 4, 18 through 22, describes how the heart works. He talks about the hardness of heart. Due to the hardness of heart, verse 18, Ephesians 4. What, what comes with the hardness of heart? Darkened understanding, ignorance. And then that produces, this hardness of heart produces in verse 19, callousness, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And we know what callousness, this callous, and callousness, um, character is like, or the, Calluses on our hands are like when you use something over and over again. They become impervious to the feelings, right? Because they're used over and over again. That's the idea of the darkened heart. It starts to practice something over and over again. It becomes callous to it. He says we're given over to it. Again, the world has all kinds of sophisticated labels for this. One being addiction. Christianity says enslavement. It's the heart deceiving us. We practice, 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 callous, given over. Now, that principle can work positively too when you're practicing something and you're positively given over to it. And that we describe as character. Or we may add uh, words to it like a pianist. And you know the difference between a pianist and someone who's practicing to play the piano for the first time. Practice, 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 practice. Pianist, right? It's the character of one's life. They've been now given over to the art. In a positive sense, it sounds so bad to give over, but you understand. It's almost, and it sounds negative too, possessed you because <laughs> you practice, 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 and now it flows through you. And you say, that, that person's a pianist. Or whatever, what have you. That's the power of the heart. Jesus says it's not what goes into the man in Matthew 15. It's, it's what's inside. It's the heart that defiles the thoughts and the behavior. Now, it's easy for us as Christians to think, well, that's unbelievers. Well, obviously not David because he's concerned about his heart. And Jesus in Mark 8, 17 through 18 asked the 12 disciples, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And unless we're willing to just write the 12 off as unbelievers, I'm not willing to do that. I think he was talking about a spiritual condition of the heart. Now, what's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever? Well, the believer has a, a status in Christ, right? He's been declared right with God before the judgment bar of God. He has his sins paid for, and he has the Holy Spirit, the life-giving 
Holy Spirit, operative in our hearts, this new creative power that he's working from the life of Jesus Christ to convict us of sin, show us the glory of Christ to trust in him by faith. So faith itself, Ephesians 2 says, is a gift of grace to bring about repentance and confession of sin in such a way that First John says that the believer doesn't practice. He's not given over to the idolatry of sin. He is given over to Christ, but he's, we struggle with sin. We fight it. We make war with it. By remembering, as we're going to see here, gospel realities and using prayer as a means, asking God to work in our hearts. So, with that in mind, you've got the context, suffering, intense suffering. He's describing his body as being at the brink of death, dried out, broken up. Let me not be poured out, my life vitality. The snares and traps all around him. It, commentators note that Psalm 141 through 143 are a unit. And if that's the case, then the title for Psalm 142 tells us where David's writing this. A mask of David when he was in the cave. When is he in the cave? Surrounded by Saul. He has an opportunity, twice at least that I can think of, maybe a few more times, to strike Saul dead. Saul's rebellious. God promised to Saul that his throne, he would be dethroned and David would be the king. And so Saul, with all of his might, his power, has surrounded David and is chasing him. He has no place to go. That's what even makes this fascinating. He's been driven out of the land, out of the place of where the temple's at. So how does he even lay claim to these temple blessings when he's been driven out of the land? So here he is in this cave. He's describing his life at the brink of death, and he's concerned about his heart. So four, we're going to look at four provisions from God for finding refuge. Say it again. I want to build up this four provisions from God for finding refuge from our hearts. Refuge from our hearts. What? Because the enemy within is the greater enemy, according to David. And I'm tied into the Edemic nature, first Adam, and he declared war on God. And this curse in this world and the enmity and fighting and persecution, suffering and disease is a reflection of that. Therefore, God is more concerned about the sin. That's, that's, that, that's the height of rebellion. Now, does he weep over the suffering? Absolutely. The sin is an issue. I think of weeping as Christ, weeping over Jerusalem, seeing the perplexities of being turned over, lamenting that Jerusalem would not come to the Lord Jesus. So the first provision is this, God's substitutionary counting. And I try to have S and C. I don't know why we do stuff like that. It's not like you walk around the house going, there's four steps, God's substitutionary counting, and then move, have an S and a C and an S and a C. But that's, that's what we do, I guess. Who knows? Just kind of go with it. God's substitutionary counting. I try to use descriptive terms. Um, you've got counting in verse 2, and it's substitutionary based on the sacrifice. So look with me at verse 1 and 2. It's the first provision to find refuge in God from our hearts, our, our greater enemy. O Lord, so Yahweh, the self-existent one, enthroned. First Kings 13, Solomon says, heavens cannot even contain you. Psalm 104 describes creation like a garment. Like someone wears a robe. And this robe 
is stained because of our sin, but it nonetheless is a garment of light and glory that declares God's attributes in creation. So this is the Lord above all. And that's what he's emphasizing when he takes the title Yahweh. I call upon you. We see this word, this term call used by Abraham in Genesis 12, 8, where he calls upon the name of the Lord. It's a statement of faith and dependence and trust. Embedded in his worship, because if I'm depending upon the Lord, I'm, I'm worshiping him. So he, he calls upon the self-existent, independent one. Now, in recognizing that he's Lord, he's underlining that he's transcendent. He's above all. But then when he says, here's his prayer, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. He's recognizing God's eminence, that he's involved. And this is the beauty of our triune God as Christians, that not only is he the, the ascended most high one, but who's enthroned. The Psalms are filled with statements about his enthronement in the heavenly temple. But also that he comes near, he's presently involved. We see that reality in Christ like no other. So he prays confidently, he prays dependently. He has the confidence to call out to the one who is above all and expect that he will be attentive, that he's involved, that he has concern, that, he has, that the Lord has a love for David. How can that be? How can that be? How can the Lord who's the transcendent one draw near like this? How could David have such confidence and boldness? Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Any sin in David's life? Well, he's certainly concerned about it, that the Lord would deal with it. Proverbs 28, 9 says, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. How can he have such confidence to come boldly and say, I call upon you, the, the transcendent sovereign one, hasten to me, give ear to me. Well, it's found in verse two. Let my prayer be counted. Oh, there's the gospel truth. Counted, imputed, reckoned, equated. Let my prayer, yes, with all of its Cherished iniquity, hmm. my sin, my deception. Let it be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands, a statement of prayer, as the evening sacrifice. The incense was an offering of flour and oil and frankincense that was placed upon the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was offered as a substitute in behalf of the sinner. The symbolism is this. The animal represents the worshiper. The entire destruction of the worshiper is pictured. It's a whole burnt offering. But the worshiper is not destroyed, but preserved. In an amazing act of God's grace, the worshiper is dedicated to God and granted entrance into God's presence. That's why he's making this request. So built into the picture of the sacrifice is a substitutionary death 
the evening sacrifice, the whole burnt offering, it's consumed. But there's also pictures of the resurrection for in the incense offering, not only is there the smells of blood from the offering itself, but there's an aroma of life in the incense that rises up from that, picturing not only resurrection themes, but even in the fact that the, the sinner now can come to God and have fellowship with God gives us the contours of not only a substitutionary death, but also resurrection life. Well, why, we, why would he need this? Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 tells us that these sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ as the unblemished lamb, the lamb who is perfect. And in verse 14 of Hebrews 9, the Hebrew writer, the Spirit of God says, how much more with the blood of Christ? So comparing, contrasting to the weakness and the, the pictures of these sacrifices in the old covenant, contrasted to that, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our problem is dead works. We've been called, pictured in that burnt offering, to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, wholly, completely consumed for the glory of God. The sacrifice reminded sinners that we do that for ourselves. We live our lives on the altar for ourselves. We're consumed with ourselves. Hebrews 9.14 says that our conscience needs to be purified from these dead works, this living for myself, rather than offering the living works that are righteous and good and holy and pleasing to the Lord. cannot help but think of When you walk outside and you see beautiful flowers drinking in the sun, and what do they do? Responding back from the life that's given to them with the beauty to the world. That's our call. Receiving life from God and responding with praise and thanksgiving and living our lives wholly consumed for his glory as an incense, an aroma of life. But that's not the case. And so we need a substitute. We need sacrifice. And David recognizes that. And so he says, let my prayer be counted, reckoned as the sacrifice. And mind you, he's in, he has no access to the, the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting. He's hiding in a cave. So if his salvation relied on the very presence and going through the ritual and liturgy of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, he's in a bad state. No, you see, these are pictures that point to Christ, to the ultimate lamb. And David, in a cave, surrounded by his enemy, is clinging to the promise of God, the objective truth of the sacrifice, that God would look at his sin-stained prayer in light of the perfect sacrifice that ultimately is pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 9 tells us. And so David in Psalm 32, we know it well. One, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So this is our, this is the weapon. This is our weapon right there for the heart. Understanding who we are and the sacrifice that God has provided in Jesus Christ. The way to fall into the sin, to the heart overcome by sin, is to think we can do it ourselves. To think that God accepts me based on my own righteousness. 
You see, even the believer needs to remember that our access to God is through sacrifice. Spurgeon says this in The Power of Prayer in a Believer's Life. True prayer is an approach of the soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. True prayer is spiritual uh, transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. Prayer will not be prevailing prayer without the Son of God. Not only must he, the great high priest, go within the veil for us, but through his crucified person, the veil must be entirely taken away. Until then, we are shut out from the living God. The man who tries to pray without a savior insults the deity. The man who imagines that his own natural desires, unsprinkled by the precious blood, will be an acceptable sacrifice before God, makes a mistake. He continues. He invites his own heart to come to grips with this. He says, my heart, Spurgeon, power prayer, my heart, be sure that you prostrate yourself in such a presence. If he is so great, place your mouth in the dust before him, for he is the most powerful of all kings. His throne has sway in all worlds. Heaven obeys him cheerfully. Hell trembles at his frown. And earth is constrained to yield him worship, willingly or unwillingly. His power can create or destroy. The Lord High Chamberlain of the palace above, our Lord Jesus Christ, takes care to alter and amend every prayer before he presents it to his Father. He makes the prayer perfect with his perfection and prevalent with his own merits. God looks upon the prayer as presented through Christ and forgives all its own inherent faultiness. So when we pray, when David is praying and asking the Lord, count is the substitute sacrifice. He is making a declaration that Christ has finished the work and brought us to God. Declaring that the glory of God is in the mediator, Christ, declaring that only in Christ can we stand before God, confessing our unworthiness and confessing his worthiness and declaring that we are sinners and Christ is righteous. So with that in mind, we, we have the power now, the power source, because we understand our union with Christ. And it's all about Christ. We have access through Christ. And so we call out of dependence and we know that he came down into this world and so he's attentive. He's walking with us in the valleys of the shadow of death. And so we, we call with boldness and confidence. And what do we ask for? What does David ask for? As this journal for us. Secondly, God's sanctifying control. So substitutionary counting, sanctifying control. That the Lord would deal with his heart. See, trials here are an opportunity to examine the fruit of his heart. He's not just going to rest in these gospel realities. He wants the Lord to work through those gospel realities in fruit in his life. And so he says in verse three and four, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. How about that? Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one enthroned. Would you be a soldier to my mouth? Would you watch over the door of my lips? The idea of a guard who's watching from a tower to see if there's any glint of steel out there of an army coming or any dust that might be swirling, showing an army's coming. Keep watch like that, Lord, over my heart as the trials are pressing in and the dust of my heart begins to come forth in these sinful attitudes and grumblings and complainings. Would you watch over my heart? Verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to an evil. So he understands that the mouth bears the fruit of what goes on in the heart. And the Lord knows the heart, Psalm 139. He searches the heart. 
even through the trials. I think of Isaiah 6 when he comes before the Lord in his holy temple. And the first thing he's gripped with is, my lips are unclean, I'm undone. Because often our hearts, are they, they do, they deceive us. They, what happens is it suppresses and it justifies and condemns others. And we feel so holy and pious. But the lips and the thinking give it away as we grumble and we complain. David recognizes, and so did Isaiah in Isaiah 6, that the uncleanness of the mouth, even as it's moving to my thought life, testifies to my heart in its evil ways. And so in verse 4, he really gets to the heart of the text, the heart of his concern. Don't let my heart... How about that? Don't let my heart incline to any evil. Why does he pray like that? Because the heart has inclinations. It loves to worship. And it's always bent in a fleshly direction. And so he, he asked the Lord. This is part of our prayer request. We are actually asking the Lord, do a work in my heart. Examine my mouth. And drive it backwards to deal with the inclinations of my heart. I lay my heart before you, Lord. Rather than say, here's the 12-step plan I've got for my heart or the five-step plan to try to, to, to steer my heart, he says, Lord, I lay it before you. Incline it, steer it. Now, in verse 8 is actually the power for steering the heart. My eyes are toward you. In you, I seek refuge. Because you see where the heart desires, it delights. That's where it's going to go. And then it latches on and then we're turned over to it, right? So the, pr- the opposite principle is my eyes are, we ask the Lord because it's a supernatural work of grace that he's worked in our hearts and we've trusted in Christ. And in our sanctification, we're asking for him to grow that faith, to see Christ so our hearts are drawn like a compass to him. Why? Because in verse 4, what happens when the heart's inclined to evil? We busy, if he's, like Ephesians 4, we practice myself with wicked deeds. And then we gather ourselves the approval of men in company with men who work iniquity. And notice there's delight in it. There's a seduction in it, a a temptation in it. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Sin doesn't just come along and say, I'm this corpse. Think of parts of the Caribbean, you know, they're all corpses walking around with this apple he can't eat. But he's a living corpse. Sin doesn't come like that. It comes with allurements. comes with dainties and delicacies. And the only power over that is found, one, in the gospel realities of verse 2. Look who I am in God's provision, in the substitute sacrifice. And Lord, rivet my eyes on you to find refuge in you. That's his concern. Keep watch. So strange, isn't it? That's just not how we often pray. Lord, the enemy within is greater. <laughs> you, you, you've stepped down in, in your righteousness in Christ. You paid for my sins and you're, you're seeking to grow me in conformity to you. I'm afraid of my heart that I will become like the enemy, those who are opposed to you. I will have a rebellious heart. I will become bitter. I will become a, a grumbling heart. You so sacrificially stepped down in the person of Christ to shine grace and mercy on my soul. Lord, grow that in my heart. That's my fear, even in the, at the mouth of death, even in the graveyard. On one of our anniversaries, Robin and I spent part of our weekend celebration, and I'm not kidding, with a horseman, with a horseman. He said, I, he's in Kansas, and he's like, don't call me a cowboy. He's old school horseman. Some deep roots. I basically paid him 
for the for an eight hour day, for the first half to just tell us everything. Yeah, like he's gonna tell us everything. It's the perception, right? About horses. <laughs> and then we could ride them for the other part of the day. And the riding for me doesn't go so well. My wife loves horses and she enjoys riding when she can. And been a long time. But I love learning. So she, she sacrificed for me and I sacrificed for her. And I'm going to share a little tidbit from Jeff, the horse trainer, as he's sitting there with us in the barn on our anniversary. <laughs> oh, I'm a little crazy, I guess. Oh, well. So here's the tidbit. He said, horses are prey. He's trying to give us encourage, give me encouragement how to ride, basically. The mindset I need to have. To think like a horse. He says that horses are prey. They're animals with their eyes on the sides of their head, right? Made for observing and running from the predator. He added, you, Mr. Peterson, are a predator. You have eyes in the front of your face, like a wolf or tiger. Oh, goodness. What in the world? Like predators, our eyes are in front. His point was that Horses, they're looking all around before they go to the watering hole because they'd rather pass the drink than die by a predator. And humans just march right up, get their water, no big deal. We're at the top of the food chain. And he said this, the only way horses let a predator on their back is because they believe that humans will protect them. We're the predator. But for some reason, we're taking care of them. He said this, so, If that horse acts up, that's your fault because you're the top of the food chain. He's trusting you to protect him. And if you're scared by something, that's going to set him off. He may not know what it is, but if you, who are supposed to be the protector, is freaked out, he's going to freak out. It's your fault. (laughs) And he said, and if they run because it's your fault, you grab onto the mane, something that's fixed, not not the saddle that is movable. Grab onto a fixed anchor. And I thought, oh my goodness, why is David so concerned about his heart and not the enemy? Is because God is a greater threat. Can I say predator? I don't know if I should use that. He's the judge. He's the king. He's a greater threat. He holds my life breath in his hands. And that he would come down and provide a sacrifice for me to grow me. And to conformity to his image is part of his family. That causes a little bit of fear. And to look to him, to Lord, I want the priorities. You're pressing on my heart. You're searching me through the trial. I'm seeing stuff in my life. The dust is moving up here and of, of sin and those attitudes in my life. And I want to run them through the cross. Remember who I am in Christ. And I want to ask you to, to steer my heart and to fix it on you, Lord. That's my desire. Thirdly, sovereign confrontation. Sovereign confrontation. We've seen substitutionary counting. That's the basis for all of this. Without this, he has no access to God. This is the strength. This is the power. Secondly, sanctifying control. Wow, the God of the universe would not only save me, to call me to his family and actually work. As the Psalms often say, God is hidden in trials and suffering. He's hidden in it. In other words, he's mysteriously working through the trials in our life to accomplish his good purposes, to thread it out to his 
purpose and goal in Christ for our good, Romans 8 says. Psalms call this the hiddenness of God. So in light of that then, he, he tell, and this is hard to hold on to, God's sovereign confrontation. Let's just look at it first in verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. I read that fast. We want to read it fast because in our culture, you just affirm me, right? And I'm going to try to fish for affirmation. I might even downplay myself so you can build my steam. And how dare you do otherwise? might actually commit suicide if you do. So it's your fault, right? It's culture. This is the kingdom world turned upside down. In fact, it's interesting. He says, verse five, let a righteous man, let a believer strike me. It's like an anvil or a hammer. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil. Oil is used for medication, for refreshment, and for crowning a king. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Maybe this is one way for us to but culture a little bit to actually pray that the Lord bring people into our lives who would be willing to rebuke out of kindness and, and ask the Lord not to let our heads refuse it, to accept it, but to actually invite it. Because we breathe the air of culture. We aren't going to do it. It's the, it's, the, it's the sin of culture. But he's inviting it. Why? Because my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. In trying to strive against the, the threats and wickedness and rebellion and think of Saul, David doesn't want to step into the same paths. Right? He had so many opportunities to slay Saul. He said, no, how, how can I lay a hand on God's anointing? I can't do that. I'm not going to take the same path. And I trust that he was able to withstand that temptation because of a prayer like this. Lord, guard my heart. Now he understands the reaping and sowing effect. That is that God had promised David to have the throne. And so there'll be a time where he's vindicated and God's vindicated. Verse six, when their judges are thrown over the cliff, that's the the ruling power, Saul, the princes, then Israel shall hear my words for their pleasant. Then Israel will turn to me in that right time and place. There'll come a time of vindication. So Lord, let me not be succumbed to the sin in my heart, join the lifestyle of the wicked while trying to claim to be of God's family. Because I know there'll be a time where the tables will be turned. And I I want my heart to glory in you, to seek you, right? Verse eight. That's a hard one. I remember doing some combat training with a gentleman he was an older gentleman. It's just, it was just, I love that kind of stuff. And most of it was about learning, hearing about the war he was in. And he was telling me that on the battlefield, there are times when fingers must be amputated right there for the preservation of the soldier's life. They don't have access to anesthesia. So the fellow soldier becomes a rough anesthesiologist, if I can pronounce it right, and surgeon, he said this, that's why I'm reading it, by hitting the elbow intensely, which shuts down the nerves to the fingers so that they can be amputated right there and then to save a life. See, that's those tidbits. You're like, whoa, (laughs) that's why I would take those kind of classes. Well, he's saying on the battlefield, pressure's on. Lord, bring believers into my life. Hit that elbow. And take sin seriously. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Fourthly, 
God's saving covenant Lord. God's saving covenant Lord. So substitutionary counting, that's the foundation. That's the, that's the weapon. Sanctifying control because of the foundation of being counted as the evening sacrifice, being counted as Christ. That sacrifice points us to, we ask the Lord to have his way with our hearts in the midst of the turmoil. We don't want to join the disposition and mentality of those that are against the Lord. It's so easy to do. So just in case, Lord, five through seven, I know that there'll be a day of vindication. Right now, bring believers into my life. Hit me on the head <laughs> and let me receive it as kindness. Let me know it's like medication or anointing of a king and refreshment, like oil on my head. So here's where the heart needs to be turned towards. So it's fun. It's interesting. It's like a sandwich here. You got the heartbeat right in verses three through seven. And then on the outside, the top layer of the sandwich, the bread of his, the gospel provision of evening sacrifice and counting. But then you have the object of trust, the Lord Jesus, right? This is the bottom layer, eight through 10. They go together and hold this. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. So L, God is emphasizing that he's the master and owner. Lord, he chose the word uh, title Adonai, emphasizing his covenant lordship, which the description of that is when you have a smaller nation that's suffering, sometimes they'll reach out to a greater nation, or sometimes the greater nation will conquer and take the lesser nation. And the greater uh, emperor will say, uh, my provisions are for you. I'm going to protect you. Our a bounty is for you. You pledge loyalty to, to the throne. And this is the idea in this covenant provision. David has put his trust in the Lord. The Lord is the covenant Lord. And so David says, I seek refuge in you. Don't let me be poured out. Turn the tables, eight, nine and 10, right? Take those traps and turn them. Covenant lordship. Notice the expression of faith. You can't miss this. In you, verse eight, in you, I seek refuge. He comes empty. He comes like a beggar with nothing, knowing that even his life could be poured out. Leave me not defenseless. Don't let my life be poured out. To find all of his vitality and hope and strength in the refuge of his covenant Lord. No wonder Paul in Ephesians 1 can say, In him we have redemption. In him we have an inheritance, verse 11. We see his covenant lordship in 20 through 21 of Ephesians 1, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, the exalted one, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's the greatest. He's the grandest. He's the emperor over the sea, if you think of Chronicles of Narnia uh, pictures. In him, we found refuge in him. Now we know David actually sees his covenant Lord in light of the Messiah of Christ. Because Jesus, in Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 45, quotes from David, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two forty-five, If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's inviting them, the religious leaders, to see himself, Christ, as the son of David, the Lord that David looked to at the right hand of God. So when we look at lordship here, this covenant Lord, he understands it's the greater David. It's the Messiah. It's Christ. So here's the question. How can I trust him? How can I trust him? And for this, this is where we close, but this is where I'm excited. 
Okay, so I was doing studies for this program I'm in at RTS, and I came across this by reading some of the early church. Some of you have been in my small groups, you know this, I just couldn't hold it. And it's already been spreading. So Andrew Meyer, was, I was saying, hey, and he, he finished the statement for me. I'm like, oh, it's gotten around. But it's okay. This is so exciting. So I want you to go to Isaiah 65. Take that in hand. And then Romans 10. Isaiah 65 and Romans 10. How can we trust this God, this covenant Lord? Oh, this is grand. Todd Swift was asking when I was teaching. I said Psalm 141, but at the end is the, the, the it's it's everything. So I could just walk up here and give this to you and walk down and we're, this would be it. <laughs> but we'd love to bring the whole text of God's word. So Romans 10, you've got Isaiah 65 in one hand, Romans 10 in the other. We're going to start with Isaiah 65. I really won't connect the dots until Romans 10 through Paul's interpretation. How can we trust the sovereign Lord? That's what we're asking. So here we go. Not a lot of commentary, but verse one. I was ready to be sought, the Lord speaking, by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. And I had written in there Romans ten nineteen through 21. Now, a little commentary. He's talking here to, it's you and me. Ta-da, we're here today. We weren't part of national Israel. We're here today because he called on us. He said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. And here we are because we've heard the voice of Jesus, John 10, through his word, the voice of the shepherd, seen our sin, looked to Christ. And like Peter, we've said, who am I? Who, who else has the words of life? Only Jesus, right? Now, verse two, I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices now, Paul's going to talk about Israel in light of this. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. And I want to stop there because if you're reading through the Gospels and you see Christ delivering the men who are demon-possessed in the tombs, your mind as a reader of the Old Testament is going here. And when you're thinking of Casting out into the pigs, your mind is going here. This is how these writers by the Spirit are threading, I love to call it the hiddenness of God in this. But notice what Israel, they were, they, they, they should have proclaimed God's glory, but what do they do? And this is in contrast to God. This is in contrast, this is important. Verse five, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. That's how self-righteousness speaks. That's our heart that speaks that says, yes, I've received the counting of the sacrifice, but I'm fine. Everybody else is the problem. I'm too holy for you. Don't come near me. That's not what God did. Look at Romans 10. Romans 10 is the commentary, verse 20 and 21. Oh, this is good. It takes reading sometimes... Your forefathers, foreparents, mothers before that are writing their journals and of the early church to see stuff like this. Because we're just going on a little mosey way and it's just like we're in your face and I, you don't realize it. So remember, Isaiah 65, we're too holy. That's not God's disposition. He could have said that. I'm too holy. I'm up here. Die. And what does he, what does he do? Verse 20. We've seen this already. Then Isaiah, Paul's commentary, is so bold as to say, 
I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's you and me. It's the nations. He said, here am I, here am I. And we've come to him. We didn't seek him. We didn't ask for him. And he has shown himself through the gospel. But what of Israel? Verse 21. Of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What is that? The early church said it was this all day long. He held out his hands. Now that is the disposition of our God. It was not I'm so holy and unapproachable, which he is. But he comes down on the cross, a bloody mess, unrecognizable, Isaiah says. Our guilt and shame imputed to him, bearing the judgment of hell all day long, holding out his hands. Can he be trusted? There's no one like him. Thomas Brooks said, it is if he'd said, you shall have a true interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. David said, I find refuge in you. My grace shall be yours to pardon you. My power shall be yours to protect you. My wisdom shall be yours to direct you. My goodness shall be yours to relieve you. My mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. It's a comprehensive promise for God to be our God. Luther said, God is mine and everything is mine. I'll close with a statement made out of a book I'm reading called The The Crucified God. And he's appealing to the Acts, which describing Christ and his person. He's God, whose human nature shed his blood for us. But you can talk about God shedding blood in that sense, in the sense not that it's some divine blood, but rather Christ is God. And Christ in his human nature has shed his blood for us. That's the title of the book. Sorry, so much explanation for it. But he writes that the heart of God is self-giving. The heart of God is self-giving. Think of creation. Why in the world would he clothe himself with the, the garments of creation glory, share his, his glory with us and create us as image bearers to, for us to experience the overflow of his bounty? The heart of God is self-giving. And Christ displays the heart of his deity when as the most high one stoops to serve as the most low one to give himself to sinners. He is showing us the heart of God. Christ at the cross is laying claim to deity. The most high one, the most low one to serve and to bring us to God. I challenge you to find that in this life. The most high, the most low. David is amazed that he can find refuge in this one and praise the Lord, make my heart like that. And in these trials, have your way with my heart. Lord, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our, we want our eyes to be riveted on him. It's the only way that our hearts are turned to be inclined to evil and to sin and to practice wickedness and to, to surround ourselves then with an accompaniment of approvers for our sin. Make the sacrifice of Christ blessed to us. Continue to remind us of the glories of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account and his payment for our sin. 
and to know that we have you, we have everything, even when this world passes away, when the foundations of this world are removed. And the Hebrews 1 says that this life, like an old garment, is unthreaded. And Christ, who is everlasting to everlasting, he alone will bring us into the new creation. Make Christ awesome and grand to our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. You have a blessed Sunday.